Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Marianne Williamson on the Colbert Late Night Comedy Show went dead serious at the professional Democrats who take her for an amateur at what they do. I'm sorry, Stephen, she said. They're an amateur at what I can do, which is to say to speak plain and eloquent American language about the miserable public mood we've all been in. Here she is at the second round this week of the presidential primary on CNN. My response on the Flint water crisis is that Flint is just the tip of the iceberg. I was recently in Denmark, South Carolina, where it is, there is a lot of talk about it being the next Flint. We, we have an administration that has gutted the Clean Water Act. We have communities, particularly communities of color and disadvantaged communities all over this country, who are suffering from environmental injustice. I assure you, I lived in Gross Point. What happened in Flint would not have happened in Gross Point. This is part of the dark underbelly of American society. The racism, the bigotry, and the entire conversation that we're having here tonight, if you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid that the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. We need to say it like it is. It's bigger than Flint. It's all over this country. It's particularly people of color. It's particularly people who do not have the money to fight back. And if the Democrats don't start saying it, then why would those people feel that they're there for us? And if those people don't feel it, they won't vote for us, and Donald Trump will win. Thank you very much, Ms. Williamson. The questions about Marianne Williamson will take some sorting out. Where is she coming from? Who is she really? The starting premise here is that she manifests in the lingo an old strain of self-help and spiritualism, high and low, that says American is apple pie, from the Transcendentalists to the Prosperity Gospel to Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking, which was the secular Bible favored by Donald Trump's father in the 1950s. This is the country, remember, that invents religions like Scientology, invents scriptures like Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon, or the old pseudo-gospel A Course in Miracles that electrified young Marianne Williamson. And when church life falls, as it has been doing recently, American culture is up to inventing desanctified varieties of religious experience. This hour, the theory, practice, and history of alternative spirituality, the American religion, Harold Bloom called it. Angie Thurston strikes our keynote. She is a ministry innovation fellow at Harvard Divinity School, and she's the co-author of How We Gather, a report on spiritual collectives all around us, from Soul Cycle to CrossFit. Angie Thurston, I can't tell you uh, how I enjoy this, how we gather. It's a revelation. Um, <laughs> locate Marianne Williamson in your big picture. Where is she coming from? Organizationally but and spiritually first. Absolutely. Well, first of all, it's a real joy to get to talk to you about this tonight. Um, so when I think about Marianne Williamson in the context of my work, it's all in p 
part of a story that's been going on in the United States for centuries, but I think we can especially look at the last 50 to 60 years or so and looking at the ways that we have started to draw a distinction between religion in terms of a category that might define an identity or a community and spirituality that might be something one could engage on an individual basis and could pursue as a life or a lifestyle that might cobble together or draw upon streams from many different sources. And so if we go back to someone like uh, Richard Alpert, who came to be known by the name Ramdas and wrote the text called Be Here Now um, back in 1971, which was just a few years before A Course in Miracles came out. This was a text that invited its readers into a different way of knowing. Richard Alpert being a prominent Harvard psychologist who then went on to explore psychedelics and LSD and then went to India and met a guru and then is largely credited with some of the quote-unquote, bringing of the East uh, to the United States in terms of in terms of whether it be practices like yoga or meditation or this idea of it being possible to access a personal experience of the sacred um, through such practices and through a sort of healing that is oriented around the individual um, as opposed to only containing those types of experience within um, a religious congregational context. And that has been a through line uh, that at this point in our history is starting to have all kinds of consequences in terms of rising generations, which has really been the focus of Angie, um, my attention. Angie Thurston, do you see a clear, sharp line between the spiritual and the religion? I tend not to. I think they're all part of what Harold Bloom calls the American religion. It's optimism, it's enthusiasm, it's a sense that God is out there for me, for the U.S. too. Um, right. Right. So that's what's so fascinating about it is that you have all of these folks who are now making claims about their identi identity, such as I am spiritual, but not religious. Right. Or folks who are checking none of the above when asked about their religious identity. And so whether or not, you know, I, I could certainly say I think there's a there's a lot more nuance to <laughs> uh, to be explored in terms of the dimensionality of spirituality and religion and how they can coexist. Go go um, go to how, your how we gather. Okay, that that's um, in that book booklet. Yes. Um, the mark of millennial social culture is this dispersion of what could be called spiritual or spirited energy and every kind of alternative. Affiliations, Zumba workouts, could be community <laughs> gardens, action networks, landmark forums. Take CrossFit as, a, as an example. Right. My picture is right. these over-intense workouts, crash of barbells on garage floors, but there's spirit <laughs> in it and connection. There is indeed, yes. And it's often said that people come for the hot body and stay for the community with CrossFit. Hmm. And there's something that uh, my colleague Casper Turkheil and I started to notice in looking around at our own peers, these millennials coming of age in the United States, who were seeking a meaning and belonging and purpose, which we might argue are, are these sort of uh, perennial quests for human beings. And they may or may not have had a religious identity or affiliation, and yet they were finding these religion-like things in spaces that are called secular. And so that might be CrossFit or SoulCycle, these, these fitness communities where people are finding experiences of 
personal transformation and where they're holding each other accountable to the kind of people they want to become and where they're accessing a sense of, of greater purpose in their lives. These themes started to emerge, whether it was from fitness communities or arts communities, gaming communities, justice movements, communities around grief and loss, basically secular, nominally secular spaces. And this gets to your point about these perhaps false distinctions that we draw between religion, spirituality, and the secular landscape. So make the Marianne Williamson connection. What does she draw from them and what do they make of her? Right. So Marianne Williamson is, first of all, she's emblematic of this kind of behavior, right? She grew up in a Jewish context with and culture, but she herself went on her own spiritual quest, discovered A Course in Miracles, has also drawn on other source materials as well as experiences in order to form her personal spiritual life. So on the one hand, she's just representative of many, many other people who are doing likewise and for whom that is a recognizable uh, set of attributes. And then secondly, I think she is speaking into a longing that is very acutely felt um, where you know, not only do we see a disaffiliation from organized religion across the United States, but also, and especially on generational lines, there is a a disaffiliation with institutions in general, and that includes the institution of, of politics and the identification with some of the labels associated with politics. Do, do, we, do we know why all the disaffiliation? <laughs> yeah, well, there's a I, I, I've noticed, um, and one of my colleagues, uh, Danya Schultz, has pointed to this in Gen Z, there's a great comfort with affiliating with people, uh, but a great mm. discomfort with affiliating with institutions. So we will affiliate with a who, but not a what. And I think part of that is, <laughs> is well-earned in the sense that a lot of us coming of age feel like all the institutions and structures we've inherited are no longer in some way fit for purpose. And the kind of valorization of the entrepreneur, especially among the millennial set, has been in part a consequence of that, of us saying, I guess we just have to invent or reinvent all of the, all of the categories that we inherited. And so I think Marianne coming in and pointing so frequently to essentially business as usual being incomplete and insufficient to meet the needs that we face is very appealing within that context where she is essentially a prophetic voice in the midst of this political context saying it's not just about you know policy solutions, it's about moral authority, right? It's not just about coming up with another bill, it's about actually looking at these deep-seated and unhealed wounds in our culture, or even going back to a kind of original sin of slavery when she talks about reparations. So I think it's that that capacity to speak as a person, as an individual mm -hmm. uh, with moral authority that isn't necessarily leaning upon an institution to get her credibility from. Moral authority, key word. But suddenly I'm seeing all sorts of people in my own life who fit this bill of strong-minded, individual, ambitious, searching, activist, connected people without an affiliation other than right. the, the, the Landmark Forum or something. How right. many people are aware that um, when you stand back, you can see a search for, you can see a spiritual hunger? If, right. if, if we were told about this activity in China, we'd say, obviously, and people do say, there's a spiritual crisis spiritual hunger unsatisfied in China. Are people in this world aware that they're, that they're looking for spirit? Right. Well, there is a great spiritual insecurity that also accompanies this phenomenon because, you know, when you are 
<laughs> publicly labeled uh, w as someone who doesn't have a religious affiliation. All of the language around that is negative, right? It's none of the above, unaffiliated. We're called the nuns, or it's spiritual but not religious. The so, nothing Aryans, yeah. The, yeah, the nothing in particulars, right? So there can be a kind of evacuation of identity that occurs in that context that can make it very difficult to feel like whatever it is that you are pursuing has legitimacy. And I think that's part of what's also the story with Marianne Williamson and the mockery of her is right. there is a great cultural kind of energy to delegitimize what she's saying. Well, at the same time, you have increasing numbers of commentators saying things like, is it just me or is she making sense? Right. So there is there is a real grappling, I think, with that insecurity. Um, but I think there is also a t there's at least a twofold nature to this. Part of it has to do with social disconnection. And Hold it there, Angie. We'll come back to this question of the mockery that she seems now to be feeding on. Coming up, the self-help compulsion. This is Open Source. There would be no Marianne Williamson in public life with the no Oprah Winfrey show on television. It's been the high table of empowerment conversation in TV syndication since the mid-80s. Ms. Williamson has been a star visitor on the show since 1992, long listed as Ms. Winfrey's spiritual advisor. On their 20th anniversary, they spoke on one of Oprah's Super Soul Sundays about how far they'd come. The Course in Miracles talks about how what's true in the material world is the exact opposite of what's true in the spiritual world. So in the material world, there are only so many pieces of the pie. If I have a piece of the pie, you have less. Right. But in the spiritual world, right. the more I'm able to actualize, which and that's what enlightenment is, it's self-actualization, actualizing the love that is in our hearts. The more I self-actualize, I mean, look at what, I mean, to look at your career as such an example, as you actualize the, the resonance, it, it's a field of possibility for others. And that is true for every person. Every person. Not just people who have television platforms, right. but for everybody who has their own arena. Whatever every that life is. is a platform. Every you know, sometimes, oh, love that. You know, when people Tweet say, paint. I need a platform. Yes. You have a body, you have a mind. Every life is a platform. Yeah, and we, really we're good. waiting to be stars. Like there's a spotlight that's going to shine on us. Rather than I fact, was that's... just going to read that passage. <laughs> Hello, page one ninety one again. Uh, I think this may even be more relevant today than it was twenty years ago. The reason so many of us are obsessed with becoming stars is because we're not yet starring in our own lives. The cosmic spotlight isn't pointed at you; it radiates from within you. Oh my God, is that a message we all need to hear? You go, girl. Oprah Winfrey, though she is the most influential woman on earth, did not invent self-help. Our guest, Beth Blum, teaches English literature at Harvard, and she's just written a book on the range and depth of the impulse behind it. Her title is The Self-Help Compulsion. Beth Blum, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You make your own links and history here before the 60s. Marianne Williamson is herself a child of the 60s, a reader of the mystic Ram Das before she read A Course in Miracles. But what's the background here? Yes, well, Williamson is tapping into um, a long tradition of uh, these ideas of positive vis visualization and affirmative uh, thinking. And I, I date them back to New Thought, which was a spiritual movement that really flourished in the 1920s. Hmm. And it was a movement that combined mysticism and theosophy and Hinduism 
and it actually was very popular in Boston. It was it was kind of poked fun at, uh, called the Boston Craze. <laughs> um, really? Yeah. And and this is a movement that sounds like the ghost of William James. <laughs> I know. This is where you really get the origin of this idea that by by thinking positively, you can you can make your wishes come true. And um, this is something that influenced not only Williamson but also Donald Trump, who, as we know, um, was um, he was a devotee of um, the uh, Norman Vincent Peale and the Power of Positive Thinking, published in 1952, and he attended uh, Peale's congregation. Uh, We're going to talk. We got to talk about the the Trump connection, but also the Trump difference. Marianne Williamson is, in many ways, would certainly present herself in politics as the un-Trump, the anti-Trump, but. Um, they shared the ancestry, as mm-hmm. you say, not just uh, Norman Vincent Peale, but also television experience. Uh, they're, they're, they have bases to start with, bases that conventional media ignores pretty much. But w- what is to make of that linkage? Well, I think there's, a, I mean, listening to the Oprah clip, I think there's there's a reason that Williamson resonates so much with celebrities. And I think it's because self-help believes that success is always right. Um, self-help makes successful people feel good because mm. um, it means that they've, as Williamson says, kind of tapped into the cosmic abundance. Their their fame is an enactment of God's will or, you know, the divine power of thought and this. And so I think that that's something that would appeal to both Trump and Williamson and uh, Williamson's celebrity fo- followers like Oprah. Well, that's the prosperity gospel that Trump, or his father really, got out of Norman Vincent Peale. Uh, she gets the the love cures. Mm-hmm. Is it more alike or more different? Well, I think they're, in a way, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. I mean, uh, both of them actually go back even further than, than New Thought to the ideas of the ancient uh, Greek and Roman Stoics who believe that, you know, nothing is inherently good or bad, but it's how you think about it. Your attitude determines reality, and attitudes are more important than facts. And so that's, you know, we can see how that would relate to Trump's interest in alternative facts, but also to Williamson with her emphasis on forgiveness and the importance of the, the power of positive thinking, but also the negative consequences of, of negative thinking. You have, you have studied and written, Beth Blum, about the power of advice, the, power of advice, the lure of advice, the, the hunger for advice. Mm-hmm. Explain it. Right. Well, for me, self-help is not only about the thirst for um, kind of religion or or a reaction to waning um, religious values or economic insecurity, but it's also a way of reading. And um, it's about the desire for figures who are going to kind of curate and translate the history of of counsel and the history of wisdom literature and to update it for modern um, generations. So I know you recently had a broadcast on Middlemarch. And Speaking of advice. It, right. Readers love um, looking to texts like Middlemarch for, and picking out the kind of epigrammatic insights found in that text. And George, George Eliot is coaching you on every page. <laughs> exactly. And so this is a kind of positive uh, side of self-help. It's something, something productive and, and important that it supplies for people that I think has all sorts of interesting relationships to the way literature is taught in the university and um, the, the desire for that kind of cultural history and, and work. Dan McCannon joins us. He's the Ralph Waldo Emerson senior lecturer, no less, at the Harvard Divinity School. His book is Prophetic Encounters, Religion and the American Radical 
tradition. I have to ask you, doesn't all this go back to Emerson? Uh, this goes back to Emerson. This goes back to Emerson's friends, people like Theodore Parker, who took the idealism of transcendentalism into politics in their fight against the fugitive slave law. Uh, it goes back to Emerson's friend, George Ripley, uh, who took uh, the same idealism into utopian communalism. Uh, all of these traditions that put spirit ahead of matter can promote an apolitical stance. And sometimes Emerson was fairly apolitical, assuming that if you do your inner work, the outer world will take care of itself. But they can also be politically radical insofar as your imagine opens up and you don't feel limited by the practical realities today. You can imagine an entirely new set of material relationships uh, coming into being once we start changing our thinking. And that's the kind of radicalism that Williamson is trying to tap into. I'm just thinking of Emerson, too, the conviction that God, who is God? God is what is who dwells in us, in you, in me, supremely in Jesus the prophet. Um, William James also, for blessing all varieties of search for unchurched religious experience. It seems to me this is a very New England transcendental inheritance that she's drawing on, and I'm sure consciously. Yeah, I, I would also name um, Emerson's friend Margaret Fuller, who interpreted that idea of divine influx from Emerson in a very specific way with regard to gender. She said all sorts of you know, rigid gender rules are blocking the flow of divine energy into the world. When we allow women to be sea captains, suddenly all of this divine energy will come to us. And I think in really pushing back against those who say the United States still isn't ready for a female president, Williamson is saying, hey, you know, we can, um, uh, when we break pre-existing rules, we can bring um, radical new energy into the equation. Dan, you're a student of intentional communities, historically, but all around the world today. If you had to explain in a few words, where is she coming from? Marianne Williamson, how do you how do you set her, frame her? Yeah, well, I would say that she is a is a student and a representative of a variety of spiritual traditions, generally known as metaphysical traditions, that assume that spirit is more real than matter, and and these traditions can go in two different ways uh, politically. One one path is the path that says, as long as you get your mind right, everything will take care of itself, and the other path says. If you get your mind right, you can imagine new possibilities and act in new ways politically. So, you know, Williamson presents herself as the anti-Trump uh, in that he is cultivating emotions of hate. She wants to cultivate emotions of love. Uh, I would say in this regard, she's also the anti-Biden uh, in that Biden, and especially the people who are speaking on behalf of Biden, say the most important thing right now is to be afraid of Trump and to foreclose our options in order to do whatever is most likely to defeat Trump. And Williamson is trying to break out of that and say, no, the most important thing is to let our love be all determinative in our politics. That sounds like an abstract argument in a way. Why today? Why now? Why 2019 is is she getting traction in a pub, very public sort of way? What is it about us um, well, I do think that you know people realize that, as Angie was saying, the old institutions are not working properly, uh, and something new needs to happen. 
I want to pick up on something else that Angie said that, that really got me thinking, which was the idea that millennials would rather affiliate with a who than with a what. Uh, so a lot of Williamson's politics are very similar to the politics of the radical wing of mainstream Christianity. But the appeal there is still to the institution of Christianity. Williamson wants to attach those same political ideals to her own personality. And that's very appealing to a lot of young people, especially who don't trust the institutions. From my perspective, it's also very dangerous uh, um, because it can draw all the energy back to her. So just as Trump wants to be the personification of the strong, often hateful emotions that he stirs up, Williamson wants to be the personification of the strong, um, loving emotions that she stirs up. And as long as she wants it all to come back to her, she won't be able to form alliances with people like Sanders and Warren. And even more importantly, she won't be able to say what I think is really the logical implication of her of her theology, which is that when one of her followers runs for school board, the idealism in that run for school board is just as powerful, just as mm. transformative as Williamson's campaign for president. So the real measure of this campaign is whether she inspires a lot of other people to run for office at the local level. Angie Thurston, this sounds like the knock of so-called spiritual narcissism that has been addressed to her spirit, you know, the spirit over substance, but also her at the very center. How do we handle that? That's right. And, and it is certainly something that is right front and center, as Dan says, is this question about spiritual narcissism, which is one of the very real risks of the whole New Age movement, as well as this kind of pivotal point in our culture and from a vantage point of looking at changes in the religious landscape, because so many people are socially isolated. We have a kind of crisis of social isolation, which is in part due to the fraying of the religious uh, community fabric. You also then have this political polarization, right, where people are not in relationship with the other, as it were. And so there is a real risk to kind of reify the self in, in this process where people don't necessarily have containers of community uh, wherein to certainly develop themselves, but to also enact um, acts of service and justice that are that are oriented toward others. And so Marianne Williamson is in this fascinating place where on the one hand, I really see her uh, her pulling us to the level of ideals, um, which is something that she's in some way, I think, willing to take the fall for <laughs> in the mm -hmm. sense of she is willing to get up on a public stage and in many, many cases be uh, mocked and, and attacked and just um, discounted as a real political figure in order to say on public television, you know, you represent fear and I'm here to represent love and love will win. But as Dan says, it's also associated then with with an eye um, that is at the center. And, and that's always the question is the extent to which this um, can be expanded to activate others and that they find a way to make it actionable in their own lives. 
Does um, that compromise her political appeal even to you or me? I mean, she identifies herself politically with the Sanders-Warren wing. That's that's who I'm, right. I'm from. But what is that extra thing she adds? I don't think it's narcissism or... It's something emotional, something feelingful. It's sort of the real version of Bill Clinton saying, I feel your pain. Uh, mm. No, I feel deep bruises in this society, especially on the color line. And yep. uh, we're going to get real about it. We're going to talk real about it. Beth? Well, this is something self-help has always um, invoked is this idea that self-help authors, they'll get real. That's Dr. Phil's <laughs> motto, right? Mm. They'll tell it like it is. Um, they're going to cut through um, the rhetoric and and cut straight to the the reality of things. And, and this is so, something that Williamson is certainly evoking. Um, so, so uh, Dan, you were making a, a sort of a bit of a warning here that there's a not a heresy maybe, but a kind of vanity in this sort of presentation. Yeah, and I guess I would and I guess I would really say that on the one hand, this kind of ego trap is is pervasive in New Age um, precisely because, you know, as Angie said, it relies on personalities rather than institutions. But it is also contrary to the best principles of New Age, where you're not supposed to feed the regular ego, but always be tapping in to that Emersonian divine influx. Uh, so I'm really, I, I'm I'm both offering a stern warning and and calling Williamson to her own best insights, uh, which are all about transcending one's narrow self interest in order, you know, to let this boundless flow of love make sure that everybody has a piece of an ever expanding pie. Do we know what she really wants? Does she aspire to be president of the United States? Or as is routinely said about other candidates, said that, no, they'd love to be in the cabinet or they'd love to have the president's ear. What, do, what does Marianne, Marianne Williamson want, Angie? <laughs> well, certainly everything that she says is that she does indeed want to be president. I mean, not only, of course, on the, on the public stage, but I, I certainly have seen her cultivate a deep-seated a kind of relationship with the founding ideals of this country. I think that is part of why she's particularly oriented to that role. Um, but I also do think that there's something about her candidacy that, again, is in a role that's a bit more like a prophet or, as she even has said herself, mm -hmm. like a Greek chorus type of figure that is essentially calling us to a noticing uh, or in, in Walter Brueggemann's work on the prophetic mm -hmm. imagination, he talks about the grief that we must feel that the prophet invites us to, to actually grieve and lament the state of our reality before inviting us to imagine what else could be possible and then invoking courage for us to try. Um, and to the extent that that is part of her goal in this candidacy, I do think it makes sense that she is aiming for the biggest stage <laughs> um, because it's really about delivering <laughs> a message <laughs> to to an American culture that she views as sick, as as truly um, consumed by by forces that are ailing it. And I got to remember the Greek chorus. The Greek chorus, what speaks for the mm -hmm. elders, for history, for old communal wisdom mm -hmm. or what? Do we know? Can you say? Who is the Greek chorus speaking for, Dan? <laughs> Who is the Greek chorus speaking for? I'm not sure. Huh? Beth, you want to take a quick <laughs> crack at it? Um, there is some higher 
wisdom here. Yeah, the Greek chorus speaking for the narrator in the... our town, as <laughs> as um, Anderson Co- Anderson Cooper had said. The truth. We're talking about Marianne Williamson. Coming up, what happens when spiritual but not religious self-help and pop culture plunges head into headlong into the race? This is open source. Marianne Williamson set off the big buzz in the Democratic debate Tuesday night with the smallest allotment of talk time, less than half the exposure that went to each of the frontrunners, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Williamson changed the tone of the evening, and she won something more than just attention. CNN's Anderson Cooper noted as much when he rushed for his first interview after the debate was over with her. He couldn't quite pinpoint the difference she had made, but he associated it openly with his own time of mourning for his mother this spring and summer. It does seem to me, and maybe it's just that I'm, you know, in a grieving process, but it, and, and many people have come up to me in grief and connect with me in that way. And it's, it is a different kind of thinking. And I feel like you exist in that space always. That is the, the realm in which you work. And it is a very different life. And it's a very real thing that many Americans are feeling and experiencing in pain, which you discuss, but no one else really discusses. And it's it's kind of interesting. Okay, so let's talk about that. The, 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 the truth of the matter is a lot of people discuss it, but they don't discuss it within political field because the political field isn't open. It makes us feel, talks about us like we're wacky, talks about us like we're crazy. You've seen what's happened. But so it's very difficult to penetrate that field. But the truth of the matter is, this is how the American people talk today. The political conversation is not the way the American people talk. The American people, things happen. People go to therapy. People go through heartbreak. People lose people to, to yeah. death. People get sick. This conversation where we're only going to keep it about the symptom and never about the cause and only about things on the outside, that is how we got here, Anderson. This is why you were the most searched person tonight. To me, that was a fascinating moment. Anderson Cooper, the reporter, meeting Anderson Cooper, the grieving son of a famous mother, and suddenly aware of the, of the gap between languages and mindsets. It's one more example to me of a, of a gap in journalism that missed the rise of Trump and doesn't really want to see a self-help guru find a very big audience either. Nick Kristoff, the Times columnist, said flatly, she should not have been on that stage. And I'm thinking, why not? What did you What did you hear in that? He, he's, he's saying, "No, people talk about their feelings all the time." I lost my mother, or I'm uh, I, I've been upset, or depressed, or drunk, or whatever. And yet, the political language excludes that level of I don't know discourse, feeling. You know, there's a big debate among Democrats about whether the winning strategy is to appeal to the swing voters or appeal to the um, disengaged uh, voters and find a way to engage them. And what I heard Williamson doing there was offering a very powerful theory about why people are disengaged, that people make their choices about their lives and about their politics based on emotions. And when politicians speak only to a narrow range of emotions, maybe emotions of you know, financial self-interest, they miss people who are grieving, they miss people who are... Uh, you know, just in a variety of different places. And she was inviting the whole party to think more deeply about ways to cultivate the emotions of the disengaged in the way that that Trump was very successfully cultivated the emotions of one slice of disengaged voters. 
and self-help flourishes uh, during periods of social uh, unrest and insecurity. Uh, The sales of self-help have risen 11% in the Trump era. So I think that, in in a sense, he's referring to a big part of the nation that's grieving, that's in mourning about um, where the country is going and how that's producing the need for figures like Williamson to come. Angie Thurston. I think that's right. At one point in that conversation with Anderson Cooper, she said, our public policy is heartless. And I think yes. that's exactly the emotional content that she's pointing to. My my friend, Reverend Jen Bailey, uh, drew my attention to the fact that the Greek root of the words apocalypse means to uncover. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot happened with the Trump election that felt like an uncovering to a lot of people. It, it laid bare a lot of emotional content in this nation that hadn't been, again, like you said, clear to journalists or part of the public discourse about what was going on in this country. And so I think, again, to return to that kind of character that she's inhabiting in public, it's some, you know, it's some kind of almost a representation of a collective voice on the dramatic action of our nation um, that is drawing up the emotional content Uh, and putting it in the midst of politics and then asserting that it actually belongs there. We're still getting over the fact that established wise folk, pollsters, media, totally missed the Trump phenomenon. I mean, totally didn't see it coming and then didn't recognize what it was. Do we have that danger again that was simply, we've been trained to tune out the voices that she is tapping into? Well, this this discourse, this new age discourse, is so popular. Uh, it's popular among itself, in itself, right. but almost unknown to the lords of uh, of media. Right, but I mean, untouchable. That was, but that was William James's warning, actually, about New Thought. Right, the the precursor to, to the new age philosophy was that intellectuals have to take it seriously. Just because you can't participate in it doesn't mean you should dismiss it. Hmm. I want to get into the, the vote-getting logic in all of this stuff, if it comes to that, and what alliances are possible. Um, whether, you know, what is the nature of this base? Is it, is it in some, some opposite version of the Tea Party that will be there after this campaign? Would it run for local office or Congress? Uh, can she deliver it, et cetera? I think that's in her hands. I, I think I think a lot depends on uh, what messages she gives to her admirers or her supporters at such point as it perhaps becomes clear that she's not going to win the nomination. Uh, if she says, pour all your energy into a Warren or a Sanders campaign, that has one result. If she says, even better, pour that energy into races at the local level, which is the core Tea Party strategy, then that could really be game-changing in a lot of ways because, as we all know, the Democratic Party has been neglecting a lot of localities for a long time. And constituencies. What if she? What if her, her contribution were to tell Elizabeth Warren, you've got to come with me and meet the people that you've never, ever seen at the Harvard Law School? I think some of those people are at the Harvard Law School. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the funny part about it is that regardless of what people kind of attest to in their public lives, when it comes down to how they actually make meaning and make decisions, you know, you have people with all the pedigrees in the world, but they're going to psychics or they're 
you know, crying during the hill climb at SoulCycle. You know, it's mm. there's still it, this is alive and well in human beings, regardless of what they may uh, attest to, whether it's in, you know, their political or legal arena. Um, and that's I'm, I'm curious about what her motivation would even be at the point where um, it became clear that she was not going to win the nomination, uh, whether she would even focus on making political alliances or whether instead she might, I don't know, I'm thinking about Al Gore and how he just went all in on climate change, you know, whether she might just mm, do something like going all in on reparations and, you know. Let me put the strategic question uh, uh, differently. The Reverend William Barber from North Carolina is a very different sort of spiritual figure in this world, mounting, he says, a poor people's march around the presidential campaign. But can you imagine him supporting or finding common cause with Marianne Williamson, no matter how many times she invokes Martin Luther King as one of her great guides? I mean, are these things assemblable? It's really unclear, I think. I'm not sure that Williamson herself has fully figured out how to reconcile her emphasis on reparations and, and her political ideas with what's written in her in her self-help books um, and their emphasis on individual responsibility and positive visualization. And I think until that relationship is made clearer, it's hard to know uh, where to go with her. Dan, do you have a thought? A strategic uh, thought? Yeah, I, I definitely don't think there's an inherent contradiction uh, between uh, that individual work and the social work. Um, you know, as she said in the in the Oprah clip you played, uh, from the spiritual place, there's abundance for all. And I think and I think one can fight for socialism. One can fight for generous um, government social benefits. One can fight for reparations from a standpoint of abundance. Uh, rather than from a standpoint of fear. Uh, for me, the obstacle to the alliance with uh, uh, with Barber is entirely about the ego trap and not about the underlying theology. I think the theologies are reconcilable, but if Williamson comes across as ultimately wanting to be the guru, uh, I, I think William Barber has a healthy enough ego that he's not going to want to be part of a coalition it's about feeding Marianne Williamson's ego. Speak of another point entirely. The suspicion that Marianne Williamson is an unmodern, anti-modern person, including anti-science, that person who who would pray for a miracle cure with a AIDS patient on his deathbed, for example, um, is is prone to uh, nonsense and and the wrong the wrong treatments. Does this trouble you, Beth Blum? Well, I mean, it's not only that there's a history of intellectuals kind of looking down at self-help and making fun of it from the philosopher Michel Foucault to Theodore Adorno, but also self-help has often kind of made fun of intellectuals and academics and scholars and uh, has a tradition of positioning itself against them um, as offering a kind of more real and more useful kind of advice. And so I think that her her resistance to science and to official kind of political practices is part of that tradition, that anti-institutional tradition that you find in self-help. Angie Thurston, do you have a thought on the anti-science knock? Yeah, and I mean, maybe this is too generous on my part, but I guess I see her engaging with the scientific realm much as I see her engaging with the political realm, which is to say to rely solely on this way of knowing or this way of doing business is insufficient. 
Um, so I don't see her uh, actively <laughs> like antagonizing the use of science, but rather saying that in and of itself it's incomplete. And then, of course, that does result in a lot of <laughs> in a lot of backlash, uh, depending on in what forum she says that and in what way she says it. Um, but it strikes me as relatively consistent, at least as a through line in her approach to this work and and to. Um, you know, any any aspect of what she's arguing for is just that there are dimensions of our character and our emotions and our spiritual lives that need to be taken into account. Does it worry you, her, her, her ways of knowing Dan McKinnon? I, at her best, Marianne Williamson is offering a very appealing blend of science and spirit, a both-and approach that says, yes, we'll use the best that science has to offer, but we won't treat science as a mechanistic uh, source of one-size-fits-all answers. We're going to draw resources from our spiritual practices as well. I've been disappointed that when she's challenged, she hasn't spoken up for the kind of holistic, ecological, multidimensional uh, science uh, that a lot of people who are skeptical of mainstream vaccine campaigns uh, embody. Instead, she's taken the view that she's 100% in favor of mainstream science and only critical of the corporate interests of big pharma. That self-presentation isn't faithful, I think, to the best of her past, uh, which uh, is more radical and challenging in a way that I think people need to hear. I wish we could all accept multiple ways of knowing uh, as a standard in everybody's repertoire. In other words, I am also would be more worried about uh, the pure scientists who, who don't recognize the spiritual ways of knowing uh, at all. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Um, how do we feel about this this phenomenon in the net? I mean, it's just just begun, and we we may have seen the peak already. But um, I think it's she's attention must be paid, as the man said, to the feelings and the people that she's she's talking to, and also I I welcome um, uh, uh, these new voices. Uh, uh, speak for yourselves. I mean, I think there has been a void of feeling and spirit in our public life increasingly over the last... The, the trend begins 30, 40 years ago, but it's part of our our deep malaise. Yeah, I mean... That's one. The sociologists Mickey McGee and Arlie Russell Hochschild um, have talked about the pre-political potential of self-help. Yeah. Self-help possesses a desire to change the present, a belief in human agency, in community originally, um, and in the power of people to to improve their conditions through self-education and the like. And and that's a kind of promising lineage that, that her popularity could be seen to be um, tapping into, I think. I would okay. say I would say ultimately I've been I've been saying a lot about what I think Williamson should do next but really I would speak to anyone who's listening to this show because they're an admirer of Williamson they've been helped by her books and say you have the same power uh to be politically transformative you can go and start your campaign right now for school board for city council whatever it might be and and uh then the choices that Williamson makes won't matter because the spirit that Williamson represents will be living in you. This is the, the line that she and Oprah have bandied back and forth, that what we're most deeply afraid of is not our weakness but our power. Oh, yeah. And who knows where it comes from. I think it must, it must be, they were attributing it to, to uh, Nelson Mandela. But, but he was I, quoting it, Williamson. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Is that the yeah. way it was? Yeah, I, mean, I think was it's. I, I think it's. It's Nietzsche, basically. I am dynamite. <laughs> I am powerful. Uh, and watch <laughs> out, um, Angie. Do you have a last thought on this? Everybody's empowered, and and Dan's urge to get out there and prove it yourself. Well, I love Dan's urge, and I also love. I, I mean, I love that she's running, and that it is facilitating these kinds of conversations, and even facilitating all of the memes on the internet, because I think part of what that points to is simultaneously the discomfort, right? As, as someone comes forward and is acting as somewhat of a prophetic voice that forces you to actually confront perhaps these ways of knowing that you may yourself have, or these feelings of your own power that you perhaps tamp down and it evokes something and that results in both the discomfort and the humor but also potentially some of what dan's describing that people may feel empowered to actually do something that feels audacious in their own lives she could rescue the democrats also from this absolutely nutty wonkishness that she <laughs> she she spotted <laughs> right. how many deductibles how many um you know copays how many dollars how many billions trillions could you keep track of in that endless discussion of healthcare as if that's what what right. what it's about what, what what gives you pause angie in you know in some year what gives you pause about the rise of a semi-spiritual or semi-religious self-helper to to major attention mm. well i think it just it comes it comes down to that that kind of inhale, exhale of inner life, outer life. And um, so much of what also, what simultaneously feels like potential, but also gives me pause about the entire legacy of the New Thought Movement that Marian is part of, is just to make sure that whatever that tapping into power within is about, that it is accompanied by um, the bringing about care and creating communities of, of love that really tap into what we're here to do for each other. Let us hope. Thank you, Angie Thurston. Thank you, Beth Blum and Dan McCannon. We're jumpstarting our Patreon community with some wonderful bonus content. Listen this week for Adam Coleman's Walk with Lewis Hyde. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source and join up. Also for homework this weekend, read Herman Melville's short novella, Bartleby. There will be no test, no quiz, no marks. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, the artist Susan, Coleman, Co- Susan Coyne, forgive me. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our spiritual guru. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source.